If you enjoy our content and think this is important material, the best compliment you can pay is by sharing this with your friends and family. This helps us out a lot. Also, if you enjoyed today's program, please like, comment, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We would love to hear from you. Truth in My Days podcast is sponsored by the Truth in My Days ministry. Welcome to the Truth in My Days podcast, where we defend the Word of God against the challenges of men. The Passion of the Christ. When that movie first came out, it was the top moneymaker three weeks in a row, which is a bit unusual. Not unheard of. It happens once in a while with big movies, but uh, not all that common. After that, it began to go down. It dropped to second place, and then it dropped down to fifth place, I think, and then seventh place. And then in its seventh week, which was the week of Good Friday and Resurrection Day, it was back on top. And that is unprecedented. Once a movie starts to move down, it doesn't usually come back up. But a lot of Christians apparently wanted to see the movie on that week. And the testimonials coming from them are well known. Christians coming out of the movie are talking about how, how much it moved them, how it made them cry, how they now have a much better understanding of what Christ actually did for them. Many Christians are expressing a sense of shame and humility at what Christ had to undergo because of our sins. And virtually all of them agree that this movie is a profound experience, a moving experience. Naturally, Christians all around are very excited about the opportunities afforded by this movie, the impact it's making in terms of increased opportunities to witness. There are people who don't normally want to hear anything about Jesus who are willing to talk. And also in terms of its effect on Christians' lives because of how much they're moved by the movie. But what is the actual fruit of the passion of the Christ? What is the passion's fruit? What will this movie actually bear in the long term in terms of souls won for Christ and in terms of Christians' lives actually being changed? Well, that still remains to be seen. But I think it would be a good idea to take a look at the fruit of the actual passion, the real death and resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we considered the passion in light of its sequel, the resurrection on Sunday, and we saw that the passion without the resurrection is meaningless. If Jesus just died on the cross and stayed dead, then the passion would mean nothing. It would be a brutal, bloody, unfortunate death that would serve no purpose at all. It was only once Jesus rose from the dead that it came to mean everything. It meant that Jesus had been telling the truth all along, it meant that he was who he claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of the living God. It meant that his death was not just a meaningless, bloody spectacle. It meant that Jesus had actually defeated death. And it meant that he could deliver the everlasting life that he promised. Now, his disciples took some convincing, all right? They weren't ready just to believe this wonderful story without some serious proof. But Jesus was with them for 40 days after his resurrection, showing himself alive after his suffering, after his passion, 
by many infallible proofs, as we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And what we want to look at this morning is what did that do to the disciples? What fruits did it bear in them? How did it change them? And how didn't it change them? What was the fruit of the actual passion? I think we can best see this by comparing the lives of the disciples before Jesus died and rose to their lives after he had risen again. Now, the changes didn't happen immediately. Immediately after he had appeared alive to them, there was a period of flux as the disciples tried to process what had happened as they came to grips with the reality of the resurrection and their new mandate and then the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them with power. But once we're post-Pentecost, once we're past the time of the coming of the Holy Spirit, what passion fruit do we see in the lives of the disciples? Well, I'd like to draw your attention to three obvious and important changes that we can clearly see in their lives in ascending order of impact. The first has to do with fellowship. Their attitudes toward one another changed post-Pentecost. How so? Well, as you read through the accounts of Jesus' ministry, his time with his disciples, you will find among his disciples, hints of rivalry, even jealousy, and one-upmanship. Turn for a moment to Gospel according to Mark chapter 9. We'll read verses 33 to 35. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat them down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be the first, he shall be last of all, and servant of all. In Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 20, we have James and John's mother coming to Jesus, kind of on the sly, and asking, that Jesus, when it comes to his glory, that James and John will have the special positions of honor sitting at his right hand and his left hand over and above the, uh, the other disciples. They obviously are not very pleased with what, what happens in Matthew 10 when they find out about it, verses 24 to 28. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." You see, there's this, this rivalry, and Jesus again and again is trying to teach them, this is not right. You should seek to serve, not seek to greatness. And yet they, they don't seem to get it. Remember in Matthew 26, 33, for example, where Jesus tells the apostles that they will fall, they will stumble that night because of him. And Peter responds, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I'm better than these other guys. 
Yeah, maybe all those 11 will go down, but not me. Even at the Last Supper, even at that, that, that last night, they're still with this attitude. Luke 22, verse 24, in the middle of the Last Supper, we read, but there was also rivalry among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. They just can't get past that. And then even after the resurrection in John 21, where Jesus tells Peter that Peter will die for him. And Peter still has a bit of that, that just a bit of that rivalry, instantly points to John and says, but Lord, what about this man? Still comparing. And Jesus says, if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You serve me. But we don't see this sort of attitude post-Pentecost. The disciples are changed. They are no longer riven by petty jealousies or rivalries, at least as far as we can see. They are now working together in harmony for the advancement of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, Peter takes upon himself this leading role in proposing a replacement for Judas. And no one complains. He's not challenged. They work together to pick a successor. And later, James, the brother of Jesus, seems to have taken over as leader in the church in Jerusalem. And again, there's no squabble about it. They're now content to play the roles that God has assigned to them. When there's a dispute arises, a question about the proper role of the Gentiles and how they can come into the uh, covenant people and about Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, they settled amicably. They call for a meeting in Jerusalem to discuss it. And what is the outcome? Paul writes in Galatians 2, 7-9, When they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision was to Peter, for he who had worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Peaceful settling, no rivalries, everyone doing his part. So there's one passion fruit in the lives of the disciples, the putting aside of petty rivalries and jealousies and the desire for one-upmanship. In light of Jesus' death and resurrection, his vindication as the Christ they draw together for the advancement of his kingdom, Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. If you have missed any episodes and would like to listen to them, they will all be available on our YouTube channel and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. You can find the links to these on our website, truthinmydays.com, or you can look for Truth In My Days on YouTube as one word. A second change we see in the lives of the disciples, a second passion fruit, is courage. When you think back to the days when Jesus was ministering on earth and he collected these uh, followers, it's probably a bit of a lark hanging around with Jesus. Most of it anyway. He's, he's famous. He's the in guy. He's attracting crowds. He's doing miracles. He's providing bread. And, and these disciples, you know, they get to be the inner circle. It's probably kind of a cool thing. 
But eventually the other shoe drops and it becomes dangerous to be associated with Jesus. Or at least there's a perception of that. The leaders set out to kill Jesus. They have not actually threatened his followers. Yet his followers are scared. And now it may not be a lark. It may not be cool anymore. You all know the story. Jesus, when he tells them that he is going to be betrayed, he's going to be killed, and he says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Matthew 26, verses 31 to 32. Peter, as we've seen, insists that he won't stumble, even if everybody else does. But Jesus says, oh, yes, you will. Before the rooster crows, which is early morning, you will deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times. But Peter doesn't believe it. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And he's not the only one. The verse goes on to say, and so said all the disciples. They're all guaranteeing they're going to stand by him even to the end. It's not the only time they said that. In John chapter 11, when Jesus is going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, by this time the Jewish leaders want to kill him. His followers don't think it's a good idea to go. He insists. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. Big, bold words, aren't they? Well, what happened when they were actually put to the test? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the mob comes out to arrest him, armed with sticks and clubs and swords. And the disciples do look for a moment as if they're going to fight. Peter takes out his sword and whacks off uh, one of the uh, high priest's servant's ears. And I don't know, maybe they're expecting that at this point Jesus will launch the kingdom and legions of angels will come down or what. But no, Jesus tells them to stop. Don't fight. Put up your sword. And then he heals the ear of the servant. And the disciples are bewildered. They can't even fight back. Are they accepted to submit meekly as Jesus is doing? And this is too much for them. Read, they all forsook him and fled. Mark fourteen fifty, running like scared rabbits. Only two of them stay with Jesus, following him, John, and at a distance, Peter, following along rather timorously. And what happens? He does indeed deny Jesus three times. As Jesus had said, third even to a mere servant girl accusing him. And there he is cursed and sworn, said, I know not the man. Not a glowing example of backbone. But what about post-Pentecost? What then? Look at the courage there. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they stand out in public, boldly preaching Christ. Him you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. They're not mincing any words about it. Not long ago, they were afraid even to be seen in his company. And now they're boldly standing in the streets, boldly proclaiming and saying exactly, you guys killed him and you were wrong to do so. This time they don't run. And when they're hauled before the Sanhedrin and threatened and commanded not to witness anymore, what do we see? But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Acts 4, 19 to 20. 
And when the people saw their boldness, they marveled, we are told. And out they go preaching again, and they're arrested again, and they're freed by an angel, and back they go boldly. They're beaten this time and threatened. It doesn't stop them even for a moment. How different now. What a passion fruit. The third change is in their purpose in life, their goal, their priority. They now live for nothing but to preach the gospel, to edify the church, to advance the kingdom, to serve the Lord. Nothing else matters. Their careers are gone. The money-making is gone. The petty and mundane worldly concerns are forgotten because Jesus rose from the dead. Everlasting life is theirs. Heaven is their true home. So how can they waste any more time storing up treasures on earth? So the changes wrought in the disciples by the passion and resurrection are truly amazing. There are a couple of things that don't change, though, that should be noted. Morality doesn't become automatic. The disciples don't instantly become perfect. They still have to work at that. In some ways, they still have trouble shaking off the old ways of doing things. For the three or four years that Jesus walked with them, he told them from the beginning, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. All believers are welcome. It doesn't matter. The true sons of Abraham are those who come to me in faith. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach to all the people. You'll be my witnesses in Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he welcomed Gentiles, the centurion and so on. But these disciples were so steeped in their traditional racist ways that they just didn't want to do that. They insisted on staying with their own type. Never mind what Jesus had said. To the point that when Peter actually went to a Gentile, and that he did only after God had to send him a vision to make him do it, the church got angry and said, how dare you go to Gentiles? So this kind of attitude didn't change. Not much. Somehow you would think that if they're Christians, they would get past this racialist way of looking at things. But they didn't. Something they had to work at. The morality didn't come automatically. You look through the epistles in the New Testament, most of them are written to churches of Christians living post-Pentecost and yet with some serious moral problems. And the, the epistle writers are constantly exhorting the Christians to put in the effort it takes to live holy. You can't assume that because you're Bible-believing, spirit-indwelt Christian that you will automatically be perfect. The disciples weren't. We aren't. We've got to work at these and we have to be intentional about it. And neither does knowledge come automatically. Post-Pentecost, God continued to breathe out revelation through his scripture writers until the New Testament was completed. And even post-Pentecost, Christians had to work to know the truth and understand it so that they would not get misled by false teachings. So we've seen some of the important fruit that came about as a result of the actual passion of Jesus, the passion fruit in the life of his disciples, the changed life goals, the world-defying courage, 
and the true fellowship that they experienced. These were changes in the life of the disciples who were witnesses to the actual passion of Christ. I keep hearing that the movie version, the passion, is making such a big impact on Christian lives. I hope so. But as Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. What sort of fruit, long term, will be born in the lives of these people? What about fellowship? How are we doing in that? Do we really care about each other? Do we look after each other? Meet needs in the congregation? Live in harmony? Are we still into the little cliques, our own groups, our own rivalries, our own jealousies? You know, we are living in the light of the real passion and resurrection of Christ. Are these fruits in our lives? What about courage? I don't think we need courage like the apostles did. Because we don't face, at least for now, beatings or imprisonment or death. We don't face more than, say, the ridicule of our friends or maybe the anger of our family members. Do we preach boldly as Peter and John? Because we ought to obey God rather than men? Or are we living like the pre-Pentecost Christians, running like scared rabbits when trouble starts? Are we the kind who come to church and, yeah, we talk big about Jesus when we're in church, but in school or the workplace, it's a better not let anybody know they might make fun of me. But what about our goals and priorities? Have they changed in light of the passion? Are we really different from the world? Are we really given over to Christ? Is his service really our top priority? Or is our life still controlled by the things of this world? Think about it honestly. Not in, in theory, not in what you would say if you're asked, but in terms of how you're really living. Is the main focus of your life the advancement of his kingdom, or does it revolve around the nine to five, the rat race, making money, paying the bills, the status, keeping up with the Joneses? What are you really living for? It's not what you say that determines the answer. In terms of where your real time and your real attention is being paid, are you storing up treasure in heaven or on earth? Are you living pre-Pentecost or post-Pentecost? What is the passion fruit in your life? Thank you for listening to the Truth In My Days podcast with John Torse. If you like our content, please share this information with family and friends. It helps us a lot. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching Truth In My Days as one word again. Truth In My Days as one word. No spaces in between. Or reach us by email at info at truthinmydays.com. You may also visit our website for more comprehensive material and to learn more about our ministry. Our website is truthinmydays.com. Thank you.